Welcome to Care Captains, the podcast where Norbert Farkas has candid conversations with visionary healthcare leaders. Explore the projects, challenges, and victories in disease prevention, diagnosis, and cure. Join us for a masterclass in healthcare innovation for well-being. Hi, everyone. This is another episode of Care Captains, and uh, today I'm delighted to have Laurie LaBay on the show. And Laurie is an Alzheimer's advocate. Laurie, good morning to you. Well, thanks for having me on the show. I'm so excited to be here, Norbert. Thank you. And uh, I think you are our first guest who is an official patient advocate. And before we talked about this interview, I a little bit understood your story, why you became a so influential voice in Alzheimer's disease. Can you share your story with our audience, please? Oh, sure. I, I kind of came into this space kicking and screaming as a frustrated daughter. Um, my mom lived with the disease for 30 years, and there was just such a lack of support and disconnection, loneliness, frustration of what to do and how to help. And at the time, I was selling real estate and had been doing that for 25 years. And my focus was seniors. So I did a lot with transitions. And I saw a whole disconnect with their transitions and, and how they were treated really well either. And worked with senior communities, helping them kind of fill their beds. And it was actually them, that community, and those colleagues that urged me to step into this space. They said, you're not about doom and gloom and give me your money. You're really about hope and helping people live graciously, you know, alongside the disease and supporting it. And so they convinced me to to test the water. So I started out with a blog and I was shocked that people around the world resonated with our family stories, that we weren't the only ones that, you know, kind of felt like we were run over by a truck and just left <laughs> as roadkill, you know, the side. And um, and from there, I, you know, I gave it a lot of thought. And, and then I decided that I took my life savings and my retirement. And I slapped it on the table and said, I'm going to make a difference, big or small. I don't know what it's going to be like, but Families should not have to go through what our families went through. And I wanted to approach the whole thing differently. So I purposely did not align with anything that existed because I, I thought it would be really easy for me to get sucked in and just be another, what I saw as a clog in the wheel, not really listening and serving the families. And, uh, and I wanted to take a global approach. I wanted to be inclusive of all people at all ages and stages and positions, because back then, you know, I stepped into this in 2009. Prior to that, it was really academic and medical model only. There wasn't social support. Families really weren't listened to. And the patient weren't even included in the conversation. And so, you know, I really felt it's important that we be inclusive of everyone because I don't think we can make sustainable change without that. And I wanted to use multi-level media because everybody learns different and takes knowledge in in different ways. So I really wanted to raise the voices of all and connect people to services, products, and tools, and most importantly, hope and take away the loneliness. Very, very inspiring and very brave move from real estate 
to become a full-time patient advocate. And you said that you, you, you started to explore the topic from a new perspective, from the family and caretaker's perspective, not from the physician's or academia perspective. What were the first stories what you started blogging about? What were these topics, what you felt are really relevant for the caretakers? Well, in the life, everyday stories, you know, you can get a diagnosis and that's fine. It's good to know. But you need help on how do you maneuver that diagnosis? How do you live with it when your whole life is turned upside down? And so, you know, it's really trial and error, especially with dementia. There, there isn't a patient plan per se at all. Uh, and so one of the biggest things that I wanted to connect people to was others, because most of us walked out of the doctor's office, and this is literally, with a prescription another appointment and a diagnosis. And as we're walking out the door, we're told to get your affairs in order. And, you know, I talked with people all around the world and everyone said, you know, to our car and we cried for two hours before we could even drive home. I mean, that was it. It was, it was a death sentence on to the next patient and the families were devastated. You know, my mom lived with this disease 30 years and we even had to battle, oh, there's no way that's impossible. And it's like she was very aware of her uh, of her symptoms, but she was misdiagnosed for ten years. You know, told it was her hormones, and you know she would say this: "This ain't my girlfriend's hormones. This is different. We talk about it. No, this is different." You saw the fear she had of losing her job. How she pulled back from activities when she used to be lead and in charge. You know, the personality changes, the abilities. There were, there were so many changes and so many subtle changes, but nobody was talking about them. No one was taking them seriously. And I don't think that, you know, we can make change if we don't, if we don't create a comfortable space for people to talk, to know the real story. And, um, and so things I talked about were, you know, goofy stuff like, you know, mom put a, something in the microwave and didn't take it out of the box and started a started a fire, you know, in the microwave. Why can't she use any mechanical things anymore? You know, like the vacuum cleaner or why does she not know what the phone is or when she picks it up she holds the receiver upside down. Why is she not driving so much? Why is she not as talkative? All of these things add up. And they significantly impact not only the person, but the family and the friends around them because everything has changed and, and nobody knows why. Nobody knows how to support them, how to help them. And, and it was always so private. You know, people kept it to themselves. And, and then you get the isolation and the isolation causes depression and it causes anger and frustration and denial and none of those things are good. So I just think that we have to share what we do, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and say this worked, this didn't work, and help everyone build a toolkit and help them feel comfortable and confident that they shouldn't be embarrassed because a disease struck their family. I think these are very illustrative examples what you got really collected from your own life and um, with your mom. And then when you said that you started this story completely different, how was this different? Well, th there were blogs out there, but again, they were they were shoving statistics at us. 
they were telling us, you know, it cures around the corner. And, and yet there really wasn't anything there. You know, there wasn't anything of substance that really helped families live the day-to-day life with the disease. There wasn't anything that was really connecting people. Even some of the large organizations, you know, they would have chat rooms. But one of the comments I would hear from people is, but nobody responds. So I'm just, I'm putting it out there, but I'm not talking, not having any engagement, not having an interaction. And that has changed, you know, as technology has changed. Facebook alone has made a huge difference with the groups that are out there. And individuals have started their own groups versus an organization. They want to have conversations about all of life. They don't want to just be a disease. They want to have friends. They want to have camaraderie. They still want to laugh. And a lot of times our organizations took things, you know, so seriously, cut all of that out. And again, since 2009, a lot of that has changed, but we still have a long, long ways to go in terms of changing the perceptions, you know, that uh, a lot of people, when they would get diagnosed, would would go, well, how can this happen? This only happens to older people. You know, they're in a wheelchair, they're drooling, they can't communicate. I'm still driving. How could I have this disease? I mean, we we have a long ways to go in terms of changing these stigmas. And that's what I try with every single one of my programs to do is to bring hope and let people know that, yeah, there's a lot people can't do with dementia and every single person is different. So if I get it and you get it, our symptoms could be totally different and uh, and that that's okay. You know, there's bullying that goes on. People go, I don't believe you have dementia. And and they they bully some of the, the advocate patients that are, are speaking out and maybe at conferences because their husband or wife doesn't act like that can't do that. That doesn't mean a person doesn't have it. That doesn't mean that a person hasn't pulled the strength together to be purposeful, be engaged for two hours at a conference, and then goes home and collapses for three days because it took so much energy for them to do that. But, you know, they have a lot of purpose. Many of them, as they speak out, many say they've never felt so purposeful in their life. And, you know, purpose decreases symptoms when you feel you belong. And that does for all of us, you know, when we are able to be our authentic self and help others. After you started those podcasts, which is very, very successful, this is the Alzheimer Speaks podcast that got many, many rewards. Why did you decide from a blog to transfer over to podcast? And what were your experience with this different media? Well, what I loved was the fact that I think a voice can say so much more than words in terms of how it's interpreted. Some people don't like to read, <laughs> you know, and and sometimes things can be misinterpreted. But when you hear the inflection of the voice, it brings it to life. And I wanted a place to invite people in to say, I'm not talking at you, I'm talking with you. And so people, you know, back when I started, could call in and join the conversation. Now I do more pre recorded shows, wanted their voice to be heard. I wanted them to know that. You know, this isn't just for researchers. This isn't just for doctors. This is for families. This is for people diagnosed. We need to hear all voices because that tells the full story. 
And, and that helps, in my opinion, build collaboration that pushes us forward, that gives us hope, you know, that we are actually listening to one another. And we are finding out that there are so many more support services than most people even knew about because there was no platform to share. And to me, that was one of the biggest things uh, that motivated me. And it wasn't hard to find people to come on the show. At first, at first, people were, you know, nervous about it because they didn't know what it was. And, you know, my whole goal has always been want this like sitting around having cocktails or sitting in the kitchen having coffee with a friend. I want it to be a casual conversation. I don't want it structured. I don't want papers rattling and you feeling like you have to read your points. I think when people talk from the heart, that is the most important and most valuable information that any of us can receive because it's honest. It is. It's it's honest. And as you said, it's kind of like a friendly discussion. I'm just wondering, you recorded right now many, many episodes. You produced many shows. Which was the most memorable episode to you, Laurie, what you can still recall? Oh, my gosh. There's so many. I mean, and there's such a variety. I mean, from people that I've interviewed living with dementia, sharing their stories and what they went through and and how they pulled themselves out of being depressed and, and many even suicidal to now being an advocate for some to um, listen to them and, you know, hear they're speaking at conferences or they've started a Facebook group or, you know, they've started doing art, which is incredible that people think that they can't do, or they're pushing and getting more memory cafes going, you know, just stepping up, stepping out, um, is so powerful to hear families take their pain and suffering through this journey and trying to help others from the researchers and businesses. I really can't put my finger on one at all because they're all so diverse. And I think every single one of them is, is critical to hear because what I like might not be your favorite. You know, and that's what I want to bring is the diversity to engage all. And, you know, we laugh and we cry together in the shows. And some people go, oh, you know, you can't get emotional. It's like, yeah, I can. And I should. I should walk my talk. If I'm telling people to to feel their emotions, to move through it, then, you know, I want to hold their hand and walk through it with them if we've got an emotional moment on the show. You mentioned a very interesting thing to me. Dementia and arts. Can can I assume that when people maybe start painting, maybe their their cognitive health remains as it is or doesn't decline so fast? So, can you a little bit elaborate on this one, uh, dementia and art? Well, dementia in the arts is amazing, and people, you know, we interview people. We started this kind of informally back in 2021, myself and Mary Crescenzo, who's a master artist. I am not an artist by any stretch, but I love art. And we were doing panels and and getting people with dementia on Zoom. And they would just one by one share with us their art. They would talk about it. We're open to all different types of mediums. Some people had done art all their life. Others had never, ever done art never viewed themselves as an artist. And what we find is the the one thing that comes out of this over and over 
is when they get in the zone, their symptoms decrease and that stays with them for a while. And they artwork is just phenomenal. It's absolutely phenomenal. And I remember even with my mom coloring with my my daughter, who was, I don't know, probably around five years old and walking into a room. And as I walked into the room, they both held up their pictures, both just as proud of their artwork as the other. And it just melted my heart because that connection was there. That pride was there. And that is something that can slip with dementia. So when people can feel productive, when they can feel calm and and distracted from this crazy world, especially today that we're living in, you know, most people don't even want to turn on the news uh, and find peace. That's huge. Very, very innovative idea. Thanks for a little bit explaining that to our audience. And and you also recently, or not recently, but you started so-called global resource toolbox called Dementia Map. What inspired you to start this toolbox and, and what it is, if you could a little bit introduce that to our audience, please? Well, Dementia Map has been a dream of mine for like 40 years. <clears throat> so from the day my mom got diagnosed, I was like, where are the services, products, and tools? Hello, they got to be out there. We're, we can't be the only family, you know, that's going through this. And no one ever pulled this together. All of our large organizations pretty much just told you about what they did. And most people didn't even know about small organizations or people, you know, just being advocates that really weren't an organization. They're just trying to make a difference out there. So you were really on your own. And the problem was people say today, well, you could just Google. Well, you have to know what you can even Google. What do I ask for? What do I look for? You know, when you get diagnosed, you don't you don't know what the possibilities are. You 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 don't you don't know. And so dementia map, I always had resources on my website. You know, I'd interview people and I just kept kind of adding the list together. And then one of my listeners, Dave Weidrick, who has the memory cafe directory for six different countries, called and said, Lori, you're always talking about this. Why don't we do this? And I said, Dave, I worked on this for two and a half years. It never got off the ground. I'm emotionally drained. And he's like, Lori, just tell me your vision. And I said, my vision's really simple. I want it to be global. I want it to be friendly. I don't want people to have to sign in. So I kind of went, you know, against all the Google rules of capture subscriptions. I wanted people to feel safe and someplace where they could they could access 24 hours without pop-ups, without somebody trying to capture their name. And I wanted them to feel free and comfortable to browse, not only a resource directory where we have 150 different categories, but a calendar of events, a glossary of terms and articles that they could read for deeper learning. And yet I did not want to set it up where we just bought lists and put everything in. You know, a lot of those links aren't valid. And I wanted people to understand and make sure that they were motivated if they're going to be, you know, a member or a vendor on here, that they're going to respond to people. And, you know, since the pandemic, that's been a huge, huge issue. The lack of response, the staff shortages and things that are happening. And so we've built it slowly. Um, basically by word of mouth. 
And people are shocked at what's in there. They think it's much bigger than what it is because it's all stuff they've never heard of before. And, you know, one of the paradigm shifts too that I wanted to make was I wanted most resource directories are black and white. This is a for-profit, this is non-profit, this is government agencies. And I want to bring all of those together, plus of those that don't even realize they're a resource. Like we have a lot of uh, people diagnosed with dementia or family members or friends who have blogs, who have written books, who have YouTube channels, uh, all kinds of different things. And they are wonderful resources, but they don't even see themselves as a resource. I wanted to bring all of them together. How do you keep it up and running? How do you keep it up to date? You have a big base of volunteers. The community shares the content and you moderate it. So how would you keep the funding of dementiamap.com running, Lori? We have done it on a shoestring budget. Dave Dave is the tech person and I'm kind of the visionary and he is he got us up and running in 5 months. You know, we're not about recreating the wheel. We're about using tools and services that are out there. Even our price points are very very economical and people go why is it so cheap? And it's because it doesn't need to be expensive. You know, we're living in times where budgets are tight, staff is short, and we need to be as efficient as possible. For example, when people input their information, we don't do it for them. They're in control of that. We just review it, vet it, make sure, you know, it's not spammy. And and then they're listed out there. They have access to change their information anytime they want. You know, they can submit blog posts or or put in events for our depending on what level of membership and stuff they are. They can add new social media. They can do all kinds of stuff. And then in addition, we push out on a regular basis. We highlight our paid members and different features, you know, of the of the site itself. And, you know, that's been growing over time. We want it to grow slow and smart. We wanted to really understand and get feedback from people. And many people see the site, for example, professionals go, oh, this will be great for families. And then they peruse it. You know, I give them a tour and they're like, oh my gosh, I have to get on here because we've all been fed that we know everything that's out there and we don't and we never will. You know, this is an area that is dramatically changing and we need to work collaboratively together. And instead of doing what the next guy does, You know, I've always had the philosophy of refer it out, do what you do well, and work as a team, and people will trust you more. Uh, You know, it's just very simple. And not that things can't be duplicated, and because one person can't serve everyone or one organization can't. You know, things are too diverse, and we need need the creativity of new minds. I think that's one of the things that just held me back, is I got so tired of people saying, well, we've always done it this way. It's like, that's the problem. You know, we have to step out of the box and and mold ourselves and be fluid to the needs of today. Absolutely. And, and speaking of which, you like doing things a new way. You recently wrote a book, which is Betty the Bold Chicken. And I think it's supposed to be a kid's book, but it ended up being something else. Can you talk more about this book, Laurie? Yeah, Betty the bald chicken came to me in a dream, and all I saw was this bald chicken, and I heard the word Alzheimer's, and I saw it kind of going in in my dream, going across the screen. 
And, you know, it's, it's a cute little story. I've done it as a keynote for years and years and wanted to get it out as a book. And it never really lifted off until actually it was last March when we formally published it. And I'm so glad that, you know, it didn't get off the ground because I would have, I would have had a been small-minded to think that this is just a book about dementia, but it's a book about belonging. It's about a book about fitting in. It's about a, a book that allows us through our children to have a conversation about how we care for ourselves, how we care for others, and how we want to be cared for. And it's it's very innocent. We have had so many people from so many angles, you know, talk and give us testimonials on the book from psychologists saying this will be great for for divorce for addictions for chronic illnesses you know we've had teachers say oh my gosh the kids can really use this in school <clears throat> with the bullying and things that, that are going on in school getting them to be compassionate and and have a place to feel And so it's been really fun to see. I've had older adults go, gosh, I really thought I was going to teach my grandchildren some things, but boy, they opened up my eyes and made me reflect on my own life on how have I treated other people? How how do I want to be treated? And have I really told anybody how I want to be cared for? And and those are, um, you know, those can be really tough conversations but when you know its illustrations are just wonderful that that Emily Lund did, and you know it's just simple. It's it's one of those things where you're you're not expecting to be impacted, and then it just boom, it just hits you, and people want to share it because it's a simple story. Where you you give 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 and give. Where do you get your energy from? Where do you get your ideas from? How do you keep on going? You know, I I get energized from all my peeps. You know, the the notes I get, the comments, people reaching out. You know, someone reached out to me the other day and was telling me about, you know, a story with their family that, you know, really wasn't sure could she share it with anyone else because it was very intimate. And, you know, family dynamics... I know what that's like to not have people understand or to be in conflict with family. I know what it's like to want to care for somebody and not know how to do that. I know what it's like to go, oh my gosh, I got it right this time. I need to share this. You know, those are the things that energize me is just the the feedback and being able to see the smiles and the engagement and the comfort. Like with the memory cafes, that was a new concept that I helped bring over uh, from from overseas. And, you know, it's a very simple concept, but one that we really blocked here. It was a support group that allowed both the, the person with dementia and their care partners to meet together. And basically, our support groups had always been for the caregiver and the patient wasn't included. And people would just kind of go there to complain about their life a lot of times. And when you bring them together, now everyone's living graciously, speaking honestly and respectfully, and still working through their issues. But it's not focused all on dementia. It's focused on all of their life. So now they have a peer group 
You know, nobody wants to be a diagnosis. People still want to be a person first. They want to fit in. They want to belong. They want to have friends. They want to laugh. And if we can create environments where where people can express all their emotions, I just think that's so healthy. And I think that's kind of why society is a mess right now is we have not allowed that. You work with so many stakeholders and I think also pharmaceutical industry and the diagnostics industry can be also a very, very important stakeholder coming up with um, novel treatments, novel solutions. What do you think? How, how can industry help patient groups better or how you could work with them better? What would be your wish, Lori? Well, I think not being siloed would help, you know. Uh, and to me, the world is really kind of melding together right now. And, and you know, some walls are breaking down. You know, we have a big distrust out there with pharma right now that is bubbling. And, and it's really sad that that has happened. You know, one of the things that I would really, <clears throat> really like to see, and I know it would cost a little extra money, but they all have trouble getting people into their trials. But if you have a trial and you've got the placebo and you've got the actual thing, what I would love to see added is a social benefit with to both of those groups. So now you've doubled what you're offering. But I think the results could be huge because when there is social engagement, when there is purpose, we all know it changes our body chemistry. And that could affect their medications as well. That could help them design maybe, you know, something up a little bit better. And that it's not an all or nothing approach. And I think people are really demanding more social care. We're hearing about social prescriptions now. And instead of being fearful of that, I think we need to collaborate with that and go, this could help us as well. And, you know, how do you measure that? Yeah, it's going to be different than a, than a blood test, you know, and looking on a cellular level, you're going to be looking at the communication means that aren't always verbal. You know, you can start recording smiles. You can ask them, you know, how did you feel before and after during these periods of time? You know, was your stress or your aggravation as high as it used to be? You know, what is, you know, what is happening there? And I think they'll be really surprised. Like with the memory cafes, people say, that is my lifeline. I don't know what I would do without that because it allows them to decrease their stress on both sides. And, you know, stress does a lot of nasty things to our bodies. So I think working together could be absolutely huge. I think it would also allow the public to feel more trusting towards the pharma, that it's not a, a cure versus care, which there's still a big barrier out there if it's talked about or not. And there's a lot of resentment over that. And now you'd be taking funds and doing a little bit of both, you know, and pushing the needle forward. And I really do think that they would be shocked at some of their results and how they meet change. You are touching so many lives and indirectly you are in so many homes and, and households. Maybe what's your favorite story? What's the, the, the most favorite impact you have, you have created in your 
patient advocacy journey. You started so many applications, the blog, the podcast, the dementia map. What is that impact what you are most proud of, Lori? You know, there really isn't one because I think they all overlap and they weave together. The stories that I hear, I always tell people it's such an honor to facilitate the the memory cafes. And, you know, that's not something that I created. That was something that was, you know, basically given to us to utilize and to duplicate. And those are amazing. I love that our libraries are getting involved with that. Uh, But the stories that come out are such an honor to hear. And, you know, I can I can share a story with you just to kind of show that impact of why it's important for us to connect and talk if if we've got time for that. Absolutely. I would love to hear that story, Laurie. Thank you. Okay. So I had a couple and they have both passed. They've given me permission to share this story. And we were we were sitting in a group in a memory cafe and we always talk about all of life, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And and then dementia pops up when it pops up. And so Marianne was speaking first, and her husband, Bernie, had dementia. And she said, well, we had a difficult time last night. And Bernie's sitting next to her, and he pats her knee, and he says, did we? And she said, yeah, it was, a, it was really hard for me, Bernie. And he's like, well, why? And she said, well, when it went time to go to bed, you gave me this big hug. And you squeezed me tight, and you said, you're really a nice lady, but I'm married and you need to leave. <laughs> and, and he said, did I? And she said, yeah. And he said, well, what did you do? And she said, well, I went into the other bedroom, and I went to sleep. And then she paused, and she said, no, I, I really didn't go to sleep. And he's like, well, what did you do? And she said, I sat up all night and prayed. I'm going to get choked up. But in the morning. You knew who I was. And Bernie looks at her and he says, well, did I? And she said, yeah. And they gave each other a peck. It was amazing with that story is we probably had, you know, good 10 other couples all had experienced that. None had ever told a soul. And there was just this gasp in this room from, from every single couple. And they went around and they shared their story. You know, those are the things that are important to get people to talk about because, you know, is this going to be a walking off the cliff and they're not going to remember me again? If I share this story with friends or family, are they going to look at my loved one differently? Are they going to think less of them? Are they not going to visit because they don't want to be recognized? All of those things are going through people's heads. And, you know, we have to have a comfortable space and environment to have these conversations, to be able to share where we're understood, where we're appreciated, where our stories can help the next guy and where they can help, you know, the others in the group. Um, You know, those are the things that just make it such an honor to be, to be part of shifting our, our dementia care from crisis to comfort around the world. Those are the things that move me. Such an honest story. And, you know, I'm also feeling a little bit uncomfortable, so to say, because this is my first interview. And then we are so personal and uh, we are so much into our daily lives. And 
it's difficult to digest these stories and, and, and I'm really grateful that you are sharing that with our audience. Thank you, Lori. I think our time is coming up very soon. I always like to finish up these podcast interviews, your message, like three uh, take-home messages, your maybe key learnings, what you would like to convey maybe to, 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 to families who are facing Alzheimer, maybe with their loved ones. Maybe you can give a message to caretakers, to any industry members dealing with Alzheimer's. So you can have any kind of like final concluding thoughts. What would that be, Lori? I think the most important one is you're not alone, that others care, others understand, and we just need to, you know, hook you up to those peers, letting them know that they matter if they're living with a diagnosis or if they're caring for someone and, and realizing that they know much more than they realize they know. Everybody kind of comes into a support group and says, you know, feels like they don't know anything. And yet once they're there, they realize that they're 10 steps ahead of Bob and Mary and 20 steps behind Phil and Sue. And, and you know, when we, we start talking again, making things comfortable, I want people to know that we need to hear from you on what makes you comfortable. What, what would best help you? You know, I still think getting resources into those doctor's offices would be critical. And one of the ways that that is happening, sad to say, it's through the patients and their families, you know, and that should be a given all resources, not just an organization. And, and many, you know, many people aren't even getting their diagnosis or aren't getting, you know, referred. We have to have more support and, and that's on the way, but the only way we are going to get more support, the, in the support that's needed is to speak up. You know, we need to hear their voices we need to hear it all because that is real life. And those are the pinpoint areas that matter. You know, when there's joy, how is it created and how do we duplicate it? When there's sadness and fear, where did that come from? And, and how can we maneuver around that? What would help in that situation? These are all critical things and, and we have to have the conversation and we can't do it alone. You know, the the business side or the family side, we can't do it alone. We have to do it together. Such a nice concluding thoughts. And you provide a platform to make that happen. Lori, thank you very much for coming to Care Captains today. I learned a lot from you. It was a pleasure having you in the interview. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. And if I can give a plug for one more thing, that's just dementia, dementia chats. I would encourage people to check, you know, all of our resources are are free and they can just go to our free educational resource tab. But Dementia Chats, you will actually hear people with dementia. They pick the topics, they're, you know, floating panel. We never know who's going to show up, but they're powerful for people that are diagnosed, for families and for professionals. You will learn so much by listening to them. So again, thank you. It was just such an honor to be on your show, Norbert. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to Care Captains on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. See you next time.